You're listening to Travaux, The Current State. I'm your host, Kayleen Kosla, and today I'll be speaking with Travaux contributor, Haley DeRodoan. In today's episode, we'll be discussing international trade and the recent blockage of the Suez Canal. After six turbulent days, the ship blocking the Suez Canal is now free to roam the seas once more. The subject of much news coverage and many a meme, the Ever Given is a cargo ship that blocked the Suez Canal beginning on March 23rd. A gargantuan ship, the Ever Given has been compared to a floating skyscraper, a description that is not far off, given that the ship is approximately the same length as the Empire State Building. While we do not yet know precisely what caused the blockage, hypotheses range from weather to technological or human error, one thing is certain. The blockage, though widely viewed in a comical manner, had a serious and significant impact on international trade. During the six-day blockage, approximately 400 ships were stalled, and $9.6 billion in trade was held up each day. Understandably, the blockage prompted significant debate amongst the international legal community, and much of its long-term impacts are still yet to be seen. Can you start by providing us with some context? What is the history of the canal, and why is its geographical location so significant? The Suez Canal has a fascinating history. It is estimated that the first canal in the Suez was built in 1850 BCE. Pharaohs and Romans experimented with canal building in this region, but the Suez Canal as we know it today was built by Frenchman Ferdinand de Lesseps in 1859. After 10 years of construction, the canal was finished in 1869. Per an agreement with the Viceroy of Egypt, Said Pasha, the canal was to be managed by the Suez Canal Company, an enterprise controlled predominantly by the French. Importantly, France occupied Egypt from 1798 to 1801, which might better explain why France played such a large role here. While the Egyptians originally had a large holding in the company, due to financial problems, the Egyptian viceroy had to sell his portion, a portion which was in turn purchased by the British. Thus, for many years, the canal was operated largely by Europeans. In 1949, Egypt gained board membership once more. The canal was subsequently nationalized in 1956 and is now controlled by the Egyptian government. Regarding the canal's geographic location, the Suez Canal is located in Egypt and connects the Indian Ocean and Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea. The canal is effectively a shortcut from Europe to Asian nations such as India and China. Without the canal, ships would have to travel around the coast of Africa and up through the western side of the Mediterranean. By passing through the Suez Canal, ships save time, anywhere from 10 days to 3 weeks, and, crucially, ship owners save large sums of money. This shortcut saves fuel costs, employment costs, and maintenance costs by shortening journeys and general wear and tear. In total, even just the savings on fuel amount to approximately $30,000 per day. In short, the Suez Canal is a pretty big deal. Now, ironically, while it is a big deal, the canal itself is pretty small, as you may have gleaned by the fact that it was blocked by only one, albeit sizable, ship. The canal is approximately 673 feet wide, which, to put that in perspective, is 0.12 miles, which is coincidentally the only distance I feel comfortable running. The long history and critical positioning of the canal clearly indicate its significance. But 
As you mentioned, the canal is a meager 673 feet wide. How then could an incident as trivial as a boat blockage cause such a global international trade tragedy? Well, today a whopping 12% of global trade traverses the Suez Canal. This amounts to roughly $400 million worth of goods passing through each hour. Additionally, 2.5% of the world's oil goes through the canal, which, given what we know about international oil tensions, renders this blockage all the more concerning. So, what is the big number regarding losses caused by the canal blockage? Well, that's an easier question to ask than it is to answer. Calculating damages here is, to put it mildly, a nightmare. You have to consider the damages to the Ever Given, the damages to the canal, the damages due to lost Egyptian canal revenue, the damages and lost revenue for companies whose products expired while stuck in the canal, and the fees that companies will have to pay out for delayed delivery. Some claims will be covered by insurers and reinsurers. These claims will largely be to do with money spent attempting to free and repair the Ever Given. According to a New York Times op-ed on this topic, quote, the trickier piece of the puzzle is the cargo. Most insurance policies do not cover the economic losses for cargo delays, so companies will have to make a specific case as to why they are entitled to compensation. Such claims could reach hundreds of millions of dollars, unquote. Recently, the Suez Canal Authority's chairman suggested that Egypt will demand $1 billion in damages. So, although we are still in the get-out-your-calculators phase of this debacle, we know that the total damages are going to be massive. Can you say more about what scholars are debating as they try to understand the causes and effects of the blockage? To begin, some economists claim that the damage wrought by this blockage was exacerbated by a controversial practice in global trade, just-in-time manufacturing. Quite simply, just-in-time manufacturing involves purchasing goods as needed, as opposed to stockpiling them in warehouses. This saves money, which would otherwise go to storage, and allows it to be reinvested in products and recouped by shareholders. Now, I know what you're thinking. What's so bad about that? The big issue with just-in-time manufacturing is that it does not hold up well in light of global supply chain disruptions. So if, say, a global pandemic occurs, if we don't have products stockpiled, we will be unable to access them effectively by a just-in-time manufacturing. This was, in fact, a major issue at the start of the pandemic because many nations did not have stockpiles of essential personal protective equipment, such as masks. Remember when it was nearly impossible to find Clorox wipes and hand sanitizer? Just-in-time manufacturing is partly to blame. Another situation in which the perils of just-in-time manufacturing become all too clear, when a ship blocks a maritime trade route responsible for 12% of global trade. By espousing this as-needed approach to market demand, industries render themselves unprepared for unforeseen but not unforeseeable circumstances, such as a global pandemic or a ship blocking the Suez Canal. The risks of just-in-time manufacturing are certainly one element of the Suez Canal debacle. Our global supply chain has become so demand-driven that we are just unprepared for events which require stockpiling. Another element of this debacle, however, is the role of what have been termed choke points, like the Suez Canal, in international trade, law, and diplomacy. Across the world, there are global supply chain choke points, like the Strait of Malacca, the Panama Canal, and the Strait of Ormuz. A choke point is a small maritime passage which is vitally important to trade 
and is used widely by the international community. When choke points are blocked, the blockage is not so much a local problem as it is a global crisis. Fortunately, the Evergivens blockage was benign, the result of weather or technological error. But some are concerned that during times of conflict, nations could close off these waterways and disrupt the world's economy. Indeed, the Suez Canal has been blocked during wartime in the past. You may have heard of the 1956 Suez Crisis, when Israel attacked Egypt for refusing to allow Israel to access the canal. The nations who control these canals thus have enormous global power, and there is concern that this power could be misused to devastate the economies of enemy nations and, indeed, neutral, uninvolved ones. How are experts responding to the potential risks associated with these choke points, as highlighted by the recent blockage? Well, Admiral Stavridis, former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, published an op-ed in The Times arguing that, in light of the Suez Canal blockage, international bodies must be empowered to regulate choke points. According to the Admiral, the UN's International Maritime Organization could be the go-to for this regulation. As these canals are essentially international waterways, there's a case to be made that there should be an international regulatory body which oversees them. Per Admiral Stavridis, an international organization could, quote, conduct frequent drills and exercises to practice for disasters, have internationally funded resources to make sure canals can remain open in crisis, and have an international regime with regulatory powers inspect all of them frequently, end quote. While the Admiral promotes an interesting idea, such a proposal raises significant issues with regard to state sovereignty. Theoretically, states are sovereign over resources within their own borders, and nations like Egypt are empowered to regulate their territorial resources however they so choose, absent any extant international treaty or other obligation. Because the Suez Canal is so important to the global economy, there is an argument that choke points are more analogous to the high seas than they are to territorial waters. This argument is extremely tenuous, however, given that these territorial waters are in fact within Egypt's borders. A stronger route to establishing the international status of the canal is via treaty, because there is precedent for treaties and international organizations regulating territorial waters. Whaling treaties, for example, forbid nations from hunting whales in their own territory, indicating that a treaty regulating what Egypt can and cannot do with the canal is not in the realm of the extraordinary. In fact, in 1888, Egypt signed the Convention of Constantinople, which stipulates that, quote, the Suez Maritime Canal shall always be free and open, in times of war, as in times of peace, to every vessel of commerce or of war, without distinction of flag, unquote. Today, although the canal is managed by Egypt, it is supervised by the Multinational Observers and Force Group per the terms of a peace agreement with Israel. Therefore, Egypt has been open to treaties regulating their canal in the past, although more so in the realm of access than day-to-day -day administration. As with all things in law, when there's precedent, there's at least some argument to be made. Do you think this idea of globalizing the canal has a genuine shot at success? Would Egypt really consider surrendering its sovereignty over the canal solely in the name of international cooperation? I don't imagine that Egypt and other canal states will be open to international regulation of this kind. Why would they be? Control over the canals is effectively control over trade, and that is powerful. One compelling concern is that if the canal is globalized, 
powerful nations could impose their own agenda on canal states through international organizations. Say the International Maritime Organization decides to decrease by half the amount of ships allowed to pass through the canal each day. This would have an enormous impact on Egypt's canal revenue, but Egypt would have no say in the decision. Needless to say, you would need quite the payoff to get Egypt to agree to a deal which limits their sovereignty over their prize canal. It's not an impossible eventuality, but it's certainly not a likely one. Whatever your thoughts on global supply chains and international law, it's clear that there is far more to the ever-given story than you might have originally thought. With each passing day, as we become more interconnected and in a world where international goods and services are only a click away, we need to anticipate how we ought to deal with global issues like the Suez Canal blockage. A popular philosophy assumes that global problems require global solutions. But as international law makes all too clear, global solutions are incredibly difficult to develop. Today, we are confronting a world in which our problems don't respect borders, but our solutions must. It will be interesting to see how the global community responds to the Suez Canal blockage. For now, we, much like the ships formerly stuck behind the Ever Given, will just have to wait and see what happens. Thank you for listening. Travaux is brought to you by Veronica Bognat and the members of the online team at the Berkeley Journal of International Law. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please write to us at berkeley.travaux at gmail.com. While we're committed to bringing you international and comparative law news and insights, our podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only. The information presented is not legal advice and may not be current. Well, this historic academic year is nearing its end. This was the last episode in this semester's current state series. We'll be returning in the fall with Haley Duradawan, a classicist, quasi-comedian, and international law enthusiast, as Berkeley Journal of International Law's podcast editor and Travaux host. We're grateful to have her on our team. Haley here. I'm really looking forward to being your new Travaux host and carrying on Veronica and Kayleen's fantastic work. And a huge thank you to Kayleen Kosla the quintessential podcast host and MVP of this year's podcast team. She's done a phenomenal job leading and producing the Berkeley Journal of International Law's first ever podcast, and she will be missed. But fear not, she'll still be with us as the journal's Travaux editor, overseeing both our blog and podcast next academic year. While I'm thrilled to be taking over the Travaux blog and podcast, I am unbelievably sad to be saying goodbye to our stellar podcast founder, original blog editor, and one of my personal role models and mentors, Veronica Bognat. We wish her all the best in her future endeavors and cannot wait to see the way she changes the world. If you're hearing this, thank you for being among our earliest supporters. Look out for the next season of The Current State in fall of this year and more special interviews with international law scholars within and beyond Berkeley Law.